November the 28th, 1976. It's a boring Sunday, but at least the London weekend television show with Janet Street Porter is featuring a punk rock special. There is a short clip of the Sex Pistols playing live at the Notre Dame Hall, Leicester Square. I'd read about them in the NME, but couldn't visualise their appearance or imagine their sound before now. I'm mesmerised. It is easily the most frightening, disturbing, threatening and exciting performance I've seen since early footage of The Who. I am instantly a fan. I am 17 years old. Three days later, the pistols appear on the Bill Grundy show and the world is suddenly a very different place. May the 9th, 1977, the Rainbow North London. On a bill topped by the clash, the stellar support includes the Prefects, Subway Sect, Buzzcocks and the Jam. It's a life-changing evening. Buzzcocks play their twisted love vignettes with speed and precision and the jam display the strength and intensity that will make them the biggest band in Britain within a few years. But the clash is something else altogether. The maelstrom of thrashing guitars, angry choruses and total conviction persuade me that I should help in the demolition of three rows of seats upstairs. A month later, I am a drummer in a punk band, The Meat. Fast forward the odd 41 years. Nada, The Bombshells, The Chords, Agent Orange, Tin Soldiers, The Rage, The Way Out... The Dogs, Edelweiss Pirates, Loaded, Pucker, The Two Tims, The Wrong Trousers, Red Away Tops, Pope, Speakeasy, The Moment, The Fallen Leaves. All household names, I'm sure you'll agree, at least in one house somewhere. This is Steve from Retroman Blog, and you've been listening to Buddy Ascot um, of The Courts and The Fallen Leaves, and as you heard there, many other bands besides. And um, So Buddy, thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. Nice. And so you've been committing all your sort of memoirs to paper, I've seen some of your old files and photos going back to pre-chords days, and uh, you're actually putting everything down in writing now, and that was a great little look back on those sort of punk days and uh, what it was like. Uh, tell us about what you're doing in, in terms of your, your memoirs and your, your diaries. I'm not doing enough. Um, basically, I've been researching them for probably 10 years, uh, putting everything in order. I've kept a diary since 1969. It's a big book. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's getting difficult to lift it. Um, so all the all the basics are there, and I just need to put them in some kind of uh, organised order and then yeah. find a publisher, if anyone's listening. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be a lot of takers, because, you know, I mean, as we'll find out um, in the course of the interview, you've, you've had some sort of uh, quite exciting times in the... In the music scene, I've, and, I've been uh, around the block. You've been around the block, and, and I'm very elephant. I'm <laughs> yeah. oh, sorry, eloquent. <laughs> yeah. So it's great, and you know, you're, it's the, the way you've written there. It really sums up what it must have been like. Um, I mean, I was too young at the time, of course. Yeah, of course, remember, yeah. You know, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But, Your granddad told me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but the, the punk, the punk wars. You know, but uh, it really sums up that that feeling of. Um, and what it must have been like to that excitement of seeing those bands, you know, must have been quite amazing. I think the hard thing to, to um, describe now is the atmosphere, which is obviously a mixture of uh, tension between the tribes, which was mm. uh, getting stronger and stronger, leading right up till mid 80s, late 80s, uh, and the advent of ecstasy, which I think killed all that. But you've got this, you've got this tribalism, you've got small very loud, very smoky venues 
full of a lot of young people, mm. half of whom are probably on drugs, the other half are probably drunk. Yeah. And uh, it's a volatile mix, but it's very, very, very exciting. Yeah, because I think at the, at the time that you saw that those early punk times, it was probably just before that, before the, the sort of tribal youth cults took yeah. hold of people. But when I said when I was getting in, like probably I was into getting into music sort of 78, 79 was my time. There was a very clear cut tribal it's, image. You know, it's had interesting you say that, Steve, the, because... The cult, you had the two-tone, you had the new romantics, you had the mod revival... Which we'll get on to a little We're getting later. ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we, we are a little bit. But it was, it was good. But I think you've summed up what it was like just on the cusp of all that. But what I like about it, everyone seems to misremember, if there is such a word. Um, you look at pictures at the Roxy and the Vortex, and only about 25% are wearing punk clothing. Yeah. The rest are students, school children, yeah. hippies, workmen. People just wearing ordinary clothes at the time. So there's flares and there's lapels and there's kipper ties. Yes. And people are there to see what's happening. What, what yeah. is this exciting scene that's developing? And this idea that everyone was wearing clothes from seditionaries or sex yeah. is just nonsense. Mm. I don't think I was a punk. Like, I don't think I was a mod. I, I'm just somebody who loves the music. And yeah. so I went to see The Jam, The Clash... We can hear, all hear you pouring that beer out. You You're trying to mask it, <laughs> but we can know. all hear. I can edit that out later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I've started going to you know concerts every single week. Mm. Eddie and the Hot Rods, uh, Doctor Feelgood, The Jam, The Clash, Buzzcocks. I even played the Roxy twice, three times. Really? The, yeah, the Meat. We played there. We got banned. The Meat. The only that's such a great name for a band. The, the opening meat. song was "Come On and Meet the Meat." <laughs> <laughs> have, you, has, have any of these Meat songs ever been recorded for posterity? No, we made two demos. Um, we're not going to hear a little exclusive Meat track. Now, no, you're we? not going to hear that today because they need remastering or something. <laughs> they need melting. It doesn't down. sound like the sort of thing that needs remastering. You know? <laughs> <laughs> to get the finish. Get the finish. I really couldn't play. I really couldn't play. Uh, only the uh, guitarist, Mick English, could play. He went on to join Spodgeness Abounds. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. I remember okay. him on top of the pops wearing yeah. Lurix tights. So, as a, as a teenager at the time, it must have been a really exciting period, you know. And um, were, you, were you into music before then? No. Or was this what inspired you? No, to, there was no to... music in our house growing up. My mum had The Sound of Music and South Pacific, and that was it. There was nobody played anything, nobody, nobody played a musical instrument, nobody sang, um, and we had a couple of Lonnie Donegan records. And mm. because my father was 67 when I was born, think about that for a minute, yeah, right. yeah. Um, 
the, the generation gaps meant that um, there was no sort of cultural grounding at home. Everything I got was from mates at school. And yeah. uh, there was one boy in particular called Marco Callahan who seemed to be ahead of the game. He had the first Dr. Feelgood albums and he yeah. had Quadrophenia before anybody else. And he was the kind of oracle to go to for musical uh, education. So, so was it that sort of punk explosion that, that really hit you off on, on that, the music? That, 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 was, that was it. That was, it wasn't I'd, like I'd been a massive Who fan since mm. I first bought Join Together, the single in 1971, um, which I bought as a pop record. But when I turned it over and heard the live version of Baby Don't You Do It, then I realised that that's what rock and roll was about. joined together on somebody's transistor radio somewhere because I don't think we had one and I thought well I quite like that and I went and bought it I think it was the first or the second single I bought and I played the b-side and I thought oh that's a terrible noise and then a couple of years later I came back to it and I said oh I've played the b-side again and thought wow this is amazing yeah the singer's singing like he's dying the drummer sounds like he's playing four drum kits and and the way the four of them were interacting was just, how the hell would you do this? Yeah. I, I'd never picked up a drumstick at this point. I'm, at this point, I'm probably 14, 15. Mm. Um, and I got a pair of drumsticks from somewhere, probably a friend, and started playing on pillows and just trying to emulate Keith Moon. I'm still trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was that sense of... That was that sense of Danger and excitement that got you, rather than the musicianship. So he, yeah, he, I didn't. I, 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 I wouldn't know how. How would you play a bass drum yeah. or a, a snare drum? I'd know. I would have no idea. Yeah. With other drummers, I listen to what they're playing, and although I can't play what they play, I know what they're doing. Generally, I know what they're doing, and I can't yeah. do it. Yeah. But when I listen to Keith Moon, a lot of the time. I don't, know he's, I don't know how he's done it. Yeah. I don't understand the timing. I don't <laughs> yeah. understand the technique. This is not just somebody keeping the beat. They're, they're leading the whole thing. They're on yeah. lead drums. Yeah. And, and that just excited me. So you could see the attraction of a, of a, of a drummer being centre stage. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, there is... it wasn't just like a drummer had to sit at the back and do the, do the musicianly thing and all that. But you, so you were excited by that visual aspect and the fact that a drummer could, could be a, a, an important part of a band, which so obviously they're often not, which... To the annoyance of hundreds of people I've played with over the years, <laughs> yeah. I, I still don't want to do that. I don't know why. It's because I think it's an expression of myself. For I, I like to emphasise parts of the song. I like to follow the guitar and the vocals. And yeah. where it's exciting, I want it to be even more exciting. <laughs> Shut up. 
Quadrophenia was was there in the background the whole time, and I, I used to pour over that album sleeve the imagery and the lyrics, and I just thought this must have been the most exciting. Punk was fantastic, but I was thinking, oh, I wish I'd been alive in sixty five, sixty six. You know, yeah. I wish I'd been a teenager. And then I went to see the inmates at the Rock Garden, and there was a bloke there wearing a parka. This is late seventy eight, and I walked up and I said, "Excuse me, where'd you get your coat?" He told me where, and the next day I went down to Brick Lane, got one. Yeah. And then suddenly these mods started appearing from all over, South London, East London mainly. And then I saw an advert in January 79, Keith Moon type drummer wanted. Right up your street. That was it. That was the beginning of the chords. Yeah, they'd formed in 1978. Yes, and then so they'd already they already had a drummer at the time. Didn't yeah, they'd probably so. done about ten gigs in pubs. Uh, they had a, they'd had a couple of drummers, um, and the one that I replaced became the road manager. Hmm. And uh, and I went along, and I was the last person to audition that day. They'd been auditioning all day, and I walked in. And I was wearing yeah. a Target T-shirt and a parka. Yeah, and they thought oh, we don't really want to. Oh, okay, we'll give this one one last chance. You know, we'll, we'll do, go through it again. And um, they said, you know, knock on wood. And I said, not really. <laughs> but I played it and um, split my knuckle open on one of the tom-toms, sprayed the entire drum kit in blood, yeah. broke the bass drum pedal. Yeah. And then we did another couple of songs. And then they said, all right, you're in. All right, so they offered you the job straight away. Yeah. And I, for some unknown reason, played a little bit hard to get. We went up the park oh, in right. Tooley Street, this is London yeah. Bridge. And I said, I'll let you know tomorrow. And I, I drove home and thought about it. And of course, I left it the chance. Was this playing blood all over the Pretender's drum kit? Well, it? Billy remembers it as the Pretender's drum yeah. kit. Now, I wasn't there for the rest of the day. I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah. So you were rehearsing, or, or they, the, the legend has it that you were, you were using their drum kit or something and you broke their bass pedal. And Well, it, uh, well the, whoever's drum kit it was, I did break the bass drum pedal and <laughs> yeah. I did spray it with blood. But I don't know whose drum kit it was. Now that sounds more like an audition for a punk band rather than a modern. Well, band, this is th- you. You mentioned something <laughs> earlier about the Chords musical heritage, and um, yeah, we, we we were part of the mod revival. But Chris and I, especially, and Billy to some extent, were punk rock fans. And mm. if you listen to the arrangements of the songs, we've nicked a whole lot from Buzzcocks, The Clash, Stiff Little Fingers, The Ruts. Mm. They were bands that we loved, and. Yeah. and you know, there's nothing original in rock and roll music, not since 1965. No. So everything was nicked, um, yeah. whether conscious or unconsciously. And 
we did make the mistake of signing to Polydor. Mm. I wanted to sign to them because it was the Who's label. Yeah. But didn't think, yes, it's also, it was the, also jam. the Jams. Label, yeah, wasn't it? so um, we suffered in comparison. Yeah. So who so who was in the the chords uh, at the time? So it was it was Chris Chris Pope on guitar yeah. and main songwriter um, yeah. Billy Hassett the lead yeah. singer and rhythm guitar and Martin Mason yeah. the, the the proper musician in the band yeah. bass player um, as as is usual bass player being the best musician oh well, of course yeah. he was classically trained yeah <laughs> <laughs> like yourself yeah I wasn't <laughs> they were already the chords before you joined yeah the name was there. And yeah. uh, there was probably a a basis of around four or five originals, and we did as many covers, mm. probably more covers. We did Who songs, Small Faces, yeah. David Jones and the Lower Third. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and we obviously developed our own material the way we, the further we went along, and um, we were. I, I mean, that expression "punks in Parkers" was uh, probably would apply to me and Chris. Yeah, Billy and Martin were a bit more savvy with the clothes and the, mm. the whole sixties thing. Yeah, what, do, you, do you remember what sort of songs you were writing at the time together or, or performing? What what was a, that was a standout track? You know, when you started playing, that you um, thought, wow, this band. Chris is... used to write in batches, so there were an initial four, and then he sort of bring in "Breaks My Heart" and "I'm Not Sure" came in together. And you suddenly thought, yeah, this is the band. Was oh, it, I, I, instantly. Was it? Instant. Instant uh, cohesion and just thought, I'm home. You just, just that. Yeah. You just, as soon as they started playing at that audition, I knew. I don't know why I played, I tried to play hard to get. I don't know what that was about. It's not like me. <laughs> um, when you fit in instantly and you know that you are complimenting the others. Yeah. It's quite a special thing. It doesn't happen very often. Yeah, there, there was something about the chords which was really cross genre. You know well, there was an energy. Like, there wasn't was a there. slightly different punk, more punk energy than say the Lambrettas or the Purple Hearts or or, or Nine Below Zero or that. You know, I mean, maybe Long Tall Shorty had that punk. We, bit of a punk. They did. Well, they did. Really. Yeah, early on. We, but, I mean, we were talking about the the tribes before and. Yeah, they still hadn't um, cemented their positions on the battlefield at this point. When we toured with the Undertones, <laughs> you like that analogy, don't you? Um, yeah. When we toured with the Undertones, 
they didn't know us, the audience, and they didn't know what to expect. And we went down the storm. Yeah. One of those shows we did with the Undertones, we did four encores. We were the support band. Yeah. The punks loved us. Yeah. But what was happening towards the end of 79, beginning of 1980, is that these battle lines are being drawn quite literally. So we do gigs, especially outside London, and there'd be punks in one corner, skinheads in the other, mods yeah. in one, and hippies in the other. The music would start, and all four would just start beating the crap out of each other. And punks became too frightened to come to cause gigs. Yeah. We met a lot of punks on the road at sound checks, and they said, we'd love the calls, but I'm not coming anymore. So did you have anyone guiding? I mean, did no, you? No, was it just we were a case four were... disparate, dishevelled, drunken, <laughs> working class kids. <laughs> yeah. I was the oldest and I was 19. <laughs> I mean, what chance did we have? We turned our management from Jimmy Percy's manager, Jim Gordon, um, Mr. Weller, Andy Ferguson. And I mean, we had an ally of sorts in Dennis Mundy at Polydor. He was officially our product manager. He wasn't the bloke who signed us. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was a bloke called Jim Cook. Um, but we had no one really calling the shots for us at Polydor. Mm. Um, we were signed to Asgard Agency for gigs and concerts. No, we were on our own, and we reacted to things rather than made things happen. We never sat down and planned anything. It was completely organic. It was completely yeah. spontaneous, yeah. which I loved most of the time. But yeah. as, a, as a career plan... You were saying that, you, that Paul Weller was a fan, wasn't he? And yeah. wasn't there a, a, a time when he was interested to get his dad to, to manage you? Yeah, they, that... he offered to manage us, and Andy Ferguson offered to manage us, who was manager of the Undertones. We had yeah. a vote on that, and it was split yeah. down the middle, and yeah. the casting vote was Paul Halpin, the road manager, who decided, no, I don't want to work for anybody else. I'll continue being the head honcho. Yeah. So we didn't go with him, which is probably the worst thing we ever did. Yeah. Because we could yeah. have signed to Sire Records in the States. I mean, Which I is what the Undertones yeah. did, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, they, they, that, that would have been a great home for the courts, I think. Yeah. I think that the was Ramones, a label. Talking Heads, the Undertones, I know. the courts. Rizillos, bands Fantastic, like that. You yeah. know, I mean, I think they had the thing on the pulse of getting those bands which were sort of cross-genre, but they, I, I, I think that, was, that would have been a Seymour, great lead. Seymour Stein, the man who signed Madonna, came to see us at yeah. um, Stevenage. Really? And we were, we were terrible Did that he? night. Yeah. <laughs> Seymour Stein in the dressing room. Oh, I didn't know who he was. Yeah. Madonna hadn't even been born yet.
you sort of touched on Jimmy Percy. He was involved. How, how did he get involved with Percy that? smelt um, money? He smelt an easy dollar, I think. Um, I don't think he came down to see us. Paul Weller did at the Wellington. I don't think Percy did. He was hanging around Polydor, and we must have bumped into it because they were signed Chamsix and I were signed. Oh Polydor. yeah, and they were they were becoming they were really big, quite successful. Oh, they, they were time? becoming yeah. one of the biggest bands in the country at the time. Yeah. They had two number twos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is probably the right expression for them. Um, <laughs> Ocean Boys and uh, Hurry Up Harry. Hurry Up Harry. Yeah. So Percy liked the look of us. He saw that punk idealism in us because we did have that. I mean, we kids would travel in the van with us. We'd sleep on the floor and they'd, they'd be in the beds on tour. Mm. If they were getting attacked by skinheads, they'd come back to the hotel <laughs> and stay. Yeah. Um, so he liked that in us. And um, he produced the first single. And we were going to be the first mod revival band to release a record. It was going to be on 12-inch no. red, white and blue vinyl. So which so he did... This was never actually released, was it? The, no, it has been now. But yeah. at the time, because... Guildford happened. We were supporting the undertones. We invited Percy down as our guest. He turned up backstage and he approached the undertones and he said, All right, lads, uh, I'll come on uh, for the encore then, if you like, and uh, we could do a uh, ballstool breakout. <laughs> and they sort of looked at the floor. What's he talking about? And uh, they all looked at the road manager, Martin, lovely bloke, and he said, no, sorry, Jimmy, this is the undertone show. We don't really want to do that. And he went, what do you mean you don't want to do it? What are you talking about? I'm Jimmy Percy of Sham 69. And, they, they said, and then they, Martin said, no, Jimmy, no. He threw a massive strop and stormed out. I thought, that's the end of it. We were embarrassed and apologised to the undertones and said, look, you know, sorry, don't know what's going on. We played the show. We were great. Audience loved it. I'm standing up in the balcony overlooking the whole of what is now G Live at Guildford. Oh, the old Civic Hall? Yeah. I saw the Stranglers there last week. Ah, there you go. It's still, yeah, I can imagine it, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to strangle somebody. <laughs> um, and so the undertones are there on my right. To my left, I can see the back doors. And Percy's walking in with Steve Jones and Paul Cook and about 40 skinheads. And they make their way down the hall on the far side, snaking down on the outside of the crowd. They get to the stage. There's a bouncer. They push him out of the way. They clamber on the stage. They start knocking over all the instruments, the lights, the PA. A lighting rig just missed the bass player, Mickey. So can I, So this, this is one thing that I wasn't sure about. Sorry to interrupt. But this wasn't during your set. This was actually during the... No, 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 no. We played. We were done and dusted. So they weren't just coming on to do it during... No, the no. This see, that's, was... That's this the, was... That's, and this is only about three or four songs into the concert. Yeah, you see, that's totally outrageous, isn't it? It's beyond outrageous. People could have got killed. Yeah. And, they, and then Cook and Jones tried to pick up the instruments and start playing, but the skinheads are smashing everything up, kicking everything over. Yeah. The bouncers are standing there because they can't deal with 40 skinheads on the stage. It's an invasion. And I'm standing there and I turn to the others and I said, right, we're off the label. I don't want anything to do with this bloke. If we can't get out of the contract, I'm leaving the band. I'm never going to work with this bloke again. Yeah. And when I dig my heels in, I am one obstinate bastard. Yeah. And I don't think the others wanted to talk me out of it. Yeah, it must have been a nightmare for you. 
Steve, but but it, out of it, this, that the Polydor deal, Polydor signed you. Well, directly. what what happened next that saved us was the Peel session. We did okay. a, we did a recording uh, session for John Peel, which was I still think the best thing we ever put down yeah. on tape. Um, the Peel sessions are really well worth listening to. The, 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 there were two producers yeah. there, Mike Robinson and Mike Engels, and mm. they were brilliant. They just knew exactly what we wanted, and they knew we were Who fans. There's feedback. There's switch. Yeah switches being clicked it's just brilliant it's so exciting it's, it's much more our live sound than the, the polished album Yeah, we. Were, I mean, we were releasing a single every few months. Yeah, because you had this run, didn't you? You know, of, uh, you know. I mean, it said, you know, now it's gone was the debut single, the first yeah. single. You know, then maybe tomorrow got you onto top of the pops. Then something's missing. Then the album so far away. It, it, it was like this really. I mean, you can't, yeah, a lot of bands it, can't imagine. It's it very know. tough on Chris as the main songwriter. Yeah, I mean, I was just too busy getting drunk and letting off fire extinguishers to <laughs> write anything. Um, Billy did a little bit, Martin did a little bit, but it fell to Chris to do it, and it wasn't easy for him. And I, I don't think that the next two singles were our finest hour after mm. the album, yeah. British Way of Life and In My Street. I think yeah. they're okay, and people like them, but I don't think they're of the same calibre lyrically. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, it all went belly up yeah. with Billy. Yeah, well, Billy, you know, you know Billy had got married, and that had, ostracised him to some extent 
which was mainly our fault. Um, and that was like the gang was being broken up a bit and he wanted to bring his wife to rehearsals and recording and everything. And mm. that threw up a lot of tension. And with no management and being so young and so stupid and so drunk most of the time, things came to a head in Leamington Spa, the famous chair incident, where Billy snapped and threw a chair at Chris. That was it. That was a, a line drawn, I'm afraid. Yeah. And because we had no management to take us to one side and say, what are you doing? You can't sack your singer. We just said, oh, we'll get another singer. So, so even this is what... So even this time, so you've been on top this of... Pop, November 1980. Yep. You still didn't yep. have any management or no, advisors? So. No, no guidance, no lawyers, no managers, no... I mean, it's refreshing in a way, because there's <laughs> nothing... <laughs> because... For me, there's nothing worse than a, in a sometimes that kills a band is a manager or a record company, you know. <laughs> well, but you're doing it yourself. I think the record is, company did a pretty good job. You know, so, but but it's it's quite remarkable that you didn't have any sort of guidance from outside at that time, you know. Dennis did his best, the Polydor man. Yeah. But um, Billy was gone, and then we put adverts. There's a bit of a slanging match in the press about that, and then we put an advert in the papers, which meant 100 interviews. Wow. Wow. I mean, I've never... You know, when someone walks in the door and you know they just look 100% wrong... So it's like the commitments got, when they knock on the door of the movie and open the door. You've got to spend 20 minutes going through it, you know. It's yeah. like, why didn't we have anyone... <laughs> uh, anyway, so... I think so you, you were free, again. You had no one screening it. Which no, you, it you was us. You it had, was us. Looking, everyone's coming up, knocking no. on the door. Did you have anyone... You had the well singer known? from the, the suite... The second kind of incarnation <laughs> of the suite. The bloke had written under one roof. If you know where I'm coming from, that's not going to work on the road, is yeah, it? Classic mod band, isn't it? No, you share with him tonight. <laughs> <laughs> classic mod band, yeah. So we ended up with um, Kip. Kip was head and shoulders above everybody else. He, Kip is a proper singer. He's a proper rock and roll singer. He's got a great voice. He's got a great... Um, attitude to music and musicians he just shrugs everything off he, he replaced Knox in the vibrators yeah. so he was used to coming off the bench if you like so was Kip um, was he writing songs was he bringing any songs no he didn't he's not a writer as such um, he probably writes a bit now because I'm working with him again now with a band called the 79ers um, he's just a great bloke to have around he just diffuses any tension how did fans take to him at the time? Was he, was he accepted? Yeah. Um, do you know what? No one ever bad-mouthed him to me. Yeah. No one ever said he's not Billy, but he definitely wasn't Billy. He's, he's, Kip has got a great voice, and technically he's probably a better singer than Billy, but he hasn't got Billy's vulnerability or aggression in his voice. Yeah. And Kip can hold a better note for longer, he's got a wider range, but Billy was the sound of the calls. Yeah. And the way he sings now it's gone or breaks my heart. I don't think anyone can come close.
we're now in spring 81 we've got him ready for gigging and we're playing a few shows supporting the vapors and things are souring with polydor they they're, they're coughing up the money for two more singles and the penultimate one one more minute i remember the night we finished it we finished mixing it and we were dancing around the studio we thought this is a top 20 single yeah we were convinced this is a hit how can it not be yeah well, 87 in the charts is not quite as good as top 10. <laughs> um, it sank without trace. Yeah. Clem Burke reviewed it very kindly on Roundtable on oh. Radio 1, no, no, which I bought him a drink a couple of weeks later. Yeah. But um, a Keith Moon-influenced drummer. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, wonderful man. Wonderful drummer. But um, the writing was on the wall. Polydor weren't going to pick up the option yeah. to renew the contract. It was November 81. We did a couple more shows at the Marquee. And it just seemed to be dying a natural death. Yeah. And then me and Chris reconvened in various guises over the next few years. So we, we, we roped in a chap called Bob Smeaton, who um, was in a band called White Heat. He's now a big director on TV, made the Beatles documentary. Again, good singer, but we couldn't get any interest. We made a demo. That went pretty good for a couple of years. So when the rage rang me up, I said, we've got an offer you can't refuse. I did a couple of shows with him as a, as a laugh. I got an ultimatum from Chris to stop playing with them. So I <laughs> left him mm. and joined the Rage yeah. for a couple of years, which again was a great laugh. Did you record anything um, on the Rage? Yep, yeah, a couple of singles. Um, never really been released. Hopefully will be later this year. Yeah. The collected demos and singles. Much better live than on record. Yeah. Uh, a good time band. You wouldn't. You wouldn't try and analyse the lyrics or the music <laughs> too deeply.
supported the icicle works on a couple of dates all oh, right yeah. which yeah. turned my head i yeah. mean i just fell in love with that band and the drummer chris sharrett i think is again another very individual drummer wasn't i think he's the best drummer this country seen since yeah. keith moon i think he's a phenomenal drummer he's played with everyone from world party lightning yeah. seeds delamitri yeah um he was excellent oh he's a fantastic yeah. drummer and a really nice bloke really yeah. nice bloke so i i i saw them and I said, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be in this. So I joined a great band called The Way Out with a couple of friends. Um, then I drifted into another band, another band. Joined up with Chris again in a couple of bands before I left when everything went wrong in 89, 90. Everything went wrong in my life on a personal level. So I fled the country and ended up in Japan after going around the world because I couldn't think of anywhere else to go. And that's when Billy was in Japan, wasn't he? That's that's what I was doing there, visiting him. Yeah. So I lived in Japan for four years, and uh, while I was travelling, I was said that uh, the three things I mustn't do is get a job, fall in love, or join a band. So I did all three in Japan. Um, (laughs) Again, you should have had a manager. Yeah, I could have have managed my time better. (laughs) The life-work balance. Um, I was in the same town as Billy, the singer from the Chords, we'd made up, obviously. Um, that's how I met my, my second wife. And that's why I stayed for four years. And because there's not much to do recreation-wise out in the sticks in Japan, we started yeah. a band just to play parties originally. We just did covers and then that developed into something else. And I left in 97 to come back to the UK, but we made one album before I left did you? Uh, what was this? this is it's it. called the Red Away Tops. Oh, they yeah. finished it after I'd left. In fact, somebody, the, the back cover is four sets of feet. Yeah. Pairs of feet, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, somebody we knew out there had to stand in for me. It's not my feet. Oh. So it's, Were you wearing the Japanese getter and things no. like that? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't that authentic. <laughs> but, um, so, th- so this was with you and Billy? Yeah, me and Billy and a chap called Dennis singing. Really yeah. good singer and a yeah. really nice bloke um, on bass called Justin Oh, so you, you weren't wearing, you weren't doing like traditional Japanese sort of No, things, we were. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think I, I thought, went, you'd, enc- I thought I, you'd embrace the whole culture. No, like I didn't. People I never there. went native. I've, <laughs> I've met plenty who did, but I never yeah. went native. Oceans. She has her mind by the midnight sun. 
So I came back in 97 and sort of gravitated towards working with Chris Pope again. And we started a band. We didn't even know what we were doing. We were making a single or an EP or an LP. But we started rehearsing, just me and him. There's obviously a real good natural chemistry between us, dynamically, musically. And we somehow made an album together, which cost a fortune and took about 18 months. It was ridiculous. We put it out. I pressed up 2,000 copies, still got 1,990 copies. <laughs> you can have a few. You, you can have a few. When you, <laughs> I haven't got one of them. That's what your, your glass is resting on the coaster there. I'm just... Um, we learnt our lessons. We made a second album, which was better, and we made it quicker and cheaper. But then things were coming to a head between me and Chris, which I won't go into here. But uh, around the same time, there was a Chords reunion tour in 2010... Which was, again, not brilliantly organised or executed. The audiences were fantastic. And was this the original lineup? Yeah. Um, so Billy had come over from Japan just yep. for the, yeah. Yeah, he, he, he took uh, three weeks off, I think. Uh, was it a promoter that came to you with this idea of getting the band together? Uh, I'll tell you the real story of what happened. We had a meeting in the Wellington at Waterloo between three of us and a chap called Bob Morris and a promoter who said that he would get us on the bill with Paul Weller at the Isle of Wight that summer. Oh, would the we Isle put, Wight, the Isle yeah, Wight the Festival Isle of Wight Festival. Big, yeah, yeah. So I said, no, you won't. Paul Weller won't want us on. He said, no, don't worry, I will. So anyway, I rang Bill and I said, if we can get that, do you want to do it? And he said, mm, yeah, why not? And I'd just seen uh, Oil City Confidential about Dr. Feelgood and that really made me think. Great movie. Although I'm falling out with Chris, I would like to do that one more time. So, Billy's committed to it. We started booking a tour around this Isle of Wight date. Yeah. Uh, 40,000 flyers were pressed up. And then Paul Weller said, what's this? I'm not having the calls on the bill. Get them off. Really? Yeah. Why would he object to that? Because he didn't want anything to do with the mod revival. This is the mod father. Yeah, people had booked ferries, hotels for that. We'd booked, we'd started booking gigs around. So had it actually been advertised that you were playing? Yes. Oh, God. It was on websites. Now, we've got five or six gigs booked and we're selling tickets. So we can't pull the tour. We have to go ahead with the tour, even though the raison d'etre and the inspiration and the instigation of the tour has gone. Yeah. 
So we try and pull this tour together. Again, there's no manager. Bob Morris was booking the gigs. Then Just Jeff from the Purple Hearts was booking the gigs. It's a bit of a cluster, Beck. And somehow it happened. And the audiences were fantastic. Brilliant. Glasgow, London, Luton, Brighton, Isle of Wight. We did another venue at the Isle of Wight. This was the date that was recorded for your documentary, wasn't it? This was when you did the yeah. movie. Yeah, we made the DVD, yeah. Which yeah. was a bit of a disaster. Story of the Chords. Yeah. Which, thank you, you gave me as a, uh, my 50th birthday. Oh, I did, didn't I? That's very kind of you. Thank yeah, you. the invoice is Sorry. probably <laughs> post still. <laughs> okay. So that was, for me, to all intents and purposes, the end of the real chords. in another band at that point called Speakeasy who you've been good enough to play thank oh, you yeah, yeah that's great yeah. Um, so Speakeasy was an interesting yeah, setup, wasn't it yeah, yeah. It, there was a, a, it was formed out of a, a back, backing band yeah it? after the tsunami in 2004 yeah I, I, won't, when I won't commit to that but yeah, yeah. Not, not the Japanese one the, yeah. uh, the Thai one the Thai one yeah. and Indonesia and Malaysia yeah. there was a second mod aid single I played on the first one it was very honoured to be asked and I was asked to play on the second one and the, the the main band for that was me on drums Simon Steppings from the Purple Hearts on guitar Mark Legallet on bass from The Risk mm. um, and we had Mike Mike Evans from The Action yeah. the 60s band one of the nicest people I've ever met sadly he's gone yeah. so we, we formed as a band and we seemed to be playing well together and we decided to make a, an EP yeah. uh, with a chap called Paul Hooper-Keeley put the money up and yeah. it seemed to go down quite well. I don't think it was great, but we were grateful for the opportunity. That turned into an album. So what was the single that you, you did? Uh, it was a cover of 
afterglow and what you're going to do about it, two small faces songs. So Speakeasy then develops a bit further and we made a second album called Trouble, which I think is a really good album. Yeah, it's a good album. Yeah, I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Um, and around the same time, I was meeting Rob um, Moore of The Moment, yeah. the 80s mod revival band. This was Adrian Holder's yes, band, wasn't it? that's it. The original, really good yeah. band. Um, they were going around the same time as The Rage. Yeah. But I'd meet him at Tottenham a lot. At half time, I'd see him, and he kept saying, "Oh, come and play with the moment, come and play with the moment." And finally, I said, "Yeah, okay, let's do it." So uh, we did a little tour. They'd made an album mm. with programmed drums, and they said, "We want you to play on the album." And I said, "We've already got an album." And they said, "We want you to play on the album." And I said, "How am I going to do that?" They said, "Put the drums on last." And I said, that's impossible. That's like putting the foundations oh, under right. a house when you finished it. <laughs> but we did it. And oh, so you, play, you were just playing along to yeah. that? Oh, okay. I, played, so, I did oh, I 13 songs in one day. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know. It's, uh, it's live drums. Put on. So you were just playing over yeah. a recorded drum track? Yeah. So obviously I have to follow the pattern pretty oh, much because okay. everyone's yeah. playing to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't change it completely. Yeah, yeah. But they wanted a live feel and they wanted the rolls. And oh, okay. I'm really proud of that. I think it's a really good album. Yeah. Um, we played we, a couple of tracks, I think, on, on the podcast. Yeah. And then we made an EP last year, which I think you're going to play a track from now called Know It All. Speakeasy in the moment are they still ongoing? Yeah, they, but the moment sort of Adrian pretty, lives in Germany, it's sort of pretty flexible. Yeah, we might do some gigs later this year, maybe starting in Cardiff, but it'll only be two or three. It'll only be. A well, week. I hope so because they were both really good records. You know, I know they, they they sort of came. You know, the Speakeasy, the two Speakeasy albums were good, but I think the last one was, was Trouble was excellent. Yeah. Know? Well, we've just finished the third, and the moment was, uh, I could was give good. you an exclusive track. I could send you an MP3, I'll give you an exclusive on the new Speakeasy. Wow. 
it's not it's not mastered, but you could be able to play. Well, I'm sure our listeners are, are, are more than happy to have a, an unmastered um, track. Yeah. I will send you an exclusive new track from the Speakeasy third album that's still looking for a home. If there's any well, there you go. philanthropists out there, think of this as a little taster for your future record company. Yeah. Jimmy Percy is waiting with his checkbook as we speak. Uh, yeah, he's wait- waiting with his pension book. <laughs> I mean, you saw Subway Sex back at that fateful day, The Rainbow, um, in 77? 77. And then, and then uh, you end up now... A couple of years ago, I got dragged along to the 12 bar, and yeah. there was a band on stage, and I just stood there for 40 minutes staring up in, to the guitarist right in front of his speaker, yeah. going deaf, thinking, my God, what is he doing to that guitar? He's GBH of the guitar. So did you know at the time when you saw them, did you know it was Rob from nope. Subway Sex? No. Nope. So you hadn't put nope. two and two together? No. Didn't know anything yeah. about them. I knew that Dave Edwards was a fan, and I went along and I became a fan, and I saw them three or four times, including a couple of the shows that you put on at the Half Moon. Yeah. Um, and then I I think I the last time I saw them was Bill's, the drummer, his last show with them. And then about a week later, Rob Green phoned me up and said, do you want to be the drummer in The Fallen Leaves? And I said, what? 
<laughs> Who's put you up to this? <laughs> I still don't really know how I got it because I didn't really know them. Yeah. I'd spoken to them at a couple of shows to say I enjoyed it. I don't think they knew who I was. Um, and I thought I was auditioning. They tell me that they'd already decided, but I still <laughs> spent two weeks listening to CDs and yeah. drumming away at home. So I remember you, you, you contacted me when you were doing the auditions, didn't you? You said it was really stressful. You were really putting everything into it and... Um... It was it was it was really difficult. You were really energetic. Oh, it was the hardest yeah. I've worked since the course. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm I'm soaked through within ten fifteen minutes. Yeah, every every rehearsal. every yeah, and every gig as well. Isn't every it? gig, you know? I'm, I need a defibrillator. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and you got a I've, defibrillator, roadie. <laughs> have a heart. <laughs> I'm the thirteenth drummer they've had, and there's a reason for that. All the others are dead. No, <laughs> oh, it's, it's a spinal it's, tap. It's a tough show. It's a tough. But these are simple songs for complex people. They're, you know? they're very energetic songs for older yeah. people. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think as a, as a long-standing Paul and Lee's fan, as we are on Retroband Blog, you know, I can honestly say that it, it, it's probably the best the band has sounded. And I think a lot of people are, are, are flocking to their gigs now at the Hope and Anchor, the regular residency. And I think it's every sort of couple of months, isn't it? Saturday, every two months. Every yeah. two months. Interestingly, for me, anyway... Um, we are doing new stuff now. Uh, yeah. There's five oh, new songs in the pipeline, which oh. we start rehearsing in two weeks' time. And hopefully we'll play one of those, at least, at the next Hope and Anchor show. Yeah. Or Kingston, because we're playing Kingston on April oh, 28th. Past tense? Yes. And the new Vandals? Yes. I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully yeah. start getting some new material in. Um, the big shoes to fill, metaphorically and literally, thinking of Bill Lewington. Yeah. But... Um, I hope I can do it justice. And working on new material is something I enjoy more than anything. Yeah. That creative process. Yeah. I'm not a songwriter, but I do interpret and develop them. Yeah. Um, and the thing to do is serve the song, you know, do the best thing for the song. we
Okay, I've been a trustee of a charity called Roll Out the Barrel for about four or five years. It started when I was in a pub in East London with Gary Bushell and Paul Hallam and a nutcase walked in dragging a big water barrel behind him into the pub. Went up to Gary Bushell and said, all right, Gary, be with you in a minute. I said, I said to Bushel, who's that? He said, no idea. <laughs> anyway, it turned out that he had sort of arranged to meet him. This chap's called Adrian Brewer. He's the founder of the charity. And within three or four minutes, I said, yeah, I get it, Adrian. I get it. It's brilliant. So what he's done is developed a 30-litre water roller barrel that you give to families in the developing world, and it changes their lives immediately for the better. They no longer have to carry buckets or jerry cans of water on their head. So they don't get spinal or back injuries. They don't get raped and attacked because they have to go to the water hole four times a day. They've got 30 litres of water. This task always falls to the children and the women in the family. It's not the men. So the, 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 the onus is on them. We're not a business. We're a charity. We pay for these. We raise the money to pay for these and we give them away. Anyway, um, as a trustee, I'm supposed to come up with fundraising ideas and I've been about as much use as a chocolate teapot so far. But we had a meeting in November and I said, well, we've got this walk over the top of the O2 in Greenwich, which anyone can do at any time. And I said, we need to have a USP, a unique selling point. And they said, well, you know loads of people. And I said, yeah, I know loads of drummers. What if we could put a snare drum at the top? And they climb up and they say... (laughs) Look, here's a picture of me playing the O2. Anyway, it seems to have worked. It's snowballed. But that was my point about this is only... Well, it is a stupid idea. Drumming on the top of the O2. Yeah, everyone's going to get three or four minutes if they want three or four minutes. Personally, I need three or four seconds to prove how inept I am on a snare drum. But it's it's for a great cause. Um, It's £30 subscription to sign up. And then yeah. you set up a just giving page or virgin money giving. And then you raise as much money as you can. And I've managed to get £1,000 so far. What really helped was Rick Butler said yes almost immediately. And once yeah. I had that big name, others have sort of come on board with mm. it. So I'm really grateful to Rick. Yeah. And I'm really grateful to Foot's Drum Shop in London because I said, would you give us a snare drum to give to the person who raises the most money? And would you give me a big bass drum to get signed by everybody right. now, this has taken on a life of its yeah, own well now I mean this is not very good podcast material because <laughs> it's not very visual but we're now looking at the bass drum so buddy can you get the bass drum yep and people you have to use your imagination here listeners but we're now looking at we'll take a picture of this and we'll, we'll put it on the on the pod on the Retroman blog but so you've, you've got some well, signatures already so you've got some well some, I, went, I went to pick it up Steve and I said, have you got the skin? He said, yeah, it's in a box. I said, okay. I said, oh, Nick Mason's not coming in today, is he? He said, no, he's not. Oh, my face dropped. And he said, but he's already signed it. Oh, right. So I got it out of the box. I was almost crying with yeah. gratitude. I mean, you've got a drummer who's probably in the fifth, the yeah. top five selling bands of all time. Yeah, yeah. So Nick Mason, thank you. Pink Floyd, you know. And he has been joined by Steve White, oh, the yeah. venerable Steve White of the Style Council. Um, we've got Dave Ruffy of the Ruts, one of my favourite oh, drummers I of all time. Well, we saw the Ruts the other day. We've yeah. done a feature on the Ruts on Retroman blog recently. So. See, and I've been to these people. And we'll hopefully be actually we'll hopefully be interviewing a little bit of plug. We'll be interviewing 
Lee Hegarty from Ruts DC soon, so look Excellent. out for that as well. Excellent. And what a lovely got, man. Yes, he is. Steve Grant, leaves stiff little fingers. Yep. Seb Shelton, who's something of a recluse living up in Norfolk, he signed it. I mean, he he must have been on a million records. So are you actually physically carrying this yes. around with you around the yes. country? Yes, I look like the world's biggest stuff. pizza delivery. <laughs> it's in a flat box. You've got a little moped, you've got, you got a little Vespa with a pizza yeah. express on the back. You know. And the best yeah. thing is that living so near to the half moon, yeah. I get their flyer through every oh, month, yeah, yeah. and I look, who's playing? Who's playing? <laughs> I've got to go and doorstep yeah. them. So I've got John Coughlin from Status Quo. That's wow. how you pronounce his name. I mean, yeah. he's oh, he's yeah. sold 20 million records. Great. And Mick Avery of the Kinks. Well, this is, the to me, the Mick Avery. Wow. I mean, that's um, that's a great one, isn't it? Well, I mean... Because he's still playing, what, isn't he? What, yeah, he's playing the cast of Kings, Kings. And I didn't realise how good he is until I saw yeah, him yeah, playing yeah. with him. He's brilliant. Yeah. Um, some other big names to come. Obviously, Rick's going to sign it when he comes up. Um, and and anyone else who's there that day can sign it. They're, everyone's yeah. invited to sign the drum skin. Um, it's a very, very, very big name going to sign it, hopefully. Yeah. Um, Any clues? Um, if, 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 I had a, if I had a heart of glass, I could tell you. But no oh, clues. Right, yeah. um, oh, that's great. Well, this looks it's amazing. And I'm sure... Every music. We've got the Theatre of Hate. We've got Bush. We've got Louis Berry. We've got. Well, you got. We've got. You got Mr. Buddy Ascot of the Chords on the phone. Well, I had to get my name in early to get the space. <laughs> I had to reserve my space. Um, and this, um, I'm hoping to fill with fifty to hundred names, and then I'm going to contact the Guinness Book of Records because it'll yeah. probably be the most signed bit of drum paraphernalia ever. Well, well, I think so. And then we will auction it for the charity. Well, I think every. Self-respecting music fan will want to put a bid in for that, and I've given you my fiver across the, <laughs> across the table now. But it's, it's great; it's a work of art as well. Yeah, we'll take a picture of it, and then what we'll do, we can do a couple of pictures as, as you update it along the way, and we'll put it up on the blog. You Thank know, you. as you get more names. But um, it's a it's a great cause, and it's it's a fantastic opportunity and a very drummer-like thing as well. It's, it's sit on top of the O2 Centre. <laughs> Whacking a snare I mean, drum. You wouldn't get a bass player doing that. Well, that's the only player. thing, isn't it? Next year, am I going to approach guitarists and bass players? Well, the bass player will be sitting in some warm studio or something, sitting with <laughs> a cup of tea. As a bass player, I can attest to that. You wouldn't get them sitting up on the top of the O2 sensor. But guitarists, you know. I'm Do sure. you know what the collective noun is for drummers? Mm. I looked this up. It's an asylum of drummers. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. Well... Good luck with that, buddy. That's a fantastic um, Thank you. bit of bit of kit there, and we'll put a link to the charity and the auction and the and the and the event itself on Retroman Blog www.retromanblog.com.
before we go, let, let's just a little, a little bit of an aside. One thing I wanted to talk to you about, as we're both football fans, is you, you mentioned that you see yourself as a, you compare yourself to a goalkeeper. Oh, I've what, got this. I've had this well, long-standing this theory. theory. About this? Well, I, I can sort of see where you're coming from. Okay, you know, here's my thing. Okay, your lead singer, he's your striker, isn't he? Yeah. He's a goal hanger. Doesn't have to work too hard. Yeah. Everyone in the crowd's rooting for him. He's the hero <laughs> of all the kids. Everyone's come to see the striker. Lead guitarist. If you're attacking midfielder. Yeah, creative. The, the David Ginola. Right? Yeah, there's a certain land. There's yeah. a certain yeah. je ne sais quoi. I don't know what the French uh, is for that. What have we got? The bass players. We're not talking. What we talk about? Um, bass oh, players, Hargis. right backs. Right, right Gary right. Neville. <laughs> right, this is cut, cut the interview. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought bass players would have been like the sort of the, the Kante or the, the Owen Hargreaves, the sort of unsung. Don't use that kind of language. You're on the radio now. Um, <laughs> So, sorry, we've got You're saying example. a hold, holding midfielder? Yeah, like a bit of a, mm, I, think I see that as a rhythm guitarist. That's the rhythm oh, guitarist. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I see the bass player as the right back. I don't know right why. The, 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 the captain in weight, the sort of... Yeah, yeah I can see it. The organiser. And so the bloke at the back, who is a bit of a loner, a yeah. bit of an eccentric, Nutter. and no one notices until he makes a mistake. Or he does a Higuita, a Renny Higuita yep. scorpion yep. kick, you know. yep. Yeah. Kicks the kit off the stage. Yeah, it's the drama. <laughs> so we are the goalkeepers. I can see that. Yeah. It's a good analogy. It's a good analogy. We need to make a kind of visual display. And the, and the goalkeeper would be the only one who would be standing on top of the the O two. Certainly, one of, one of okay. <laughs> Gomez, <laughs> <laughs> the octopus. Yeah. I can see him now. Yeah. Buddy, thank you so much. And um, what's what's next? Just quickly before we go, you're, you're okay. Well, the seventy niners. Seventy Niners. Uh, not sure what we're doing at the moment. Kip is singing with us, so yeah. um, that's with Simon and Ian Jones on bass. Um, the moment might be playing a few shows later this year. Hopefully, they will be. Speakeasy have got the third album in the can. Oh, good. Yeah. Is that the expression? In the can. Um, it's Bauhaus. We're looking for a label, really, but it's yeah. it's finished and. Um, with the fallen leaves, it just goes from strength to strength. So now we're doing new material. Um, we've got the residency uh, at the Open Anchor. We've got shows coming up in Brighton, Middlesbrough, Manchester, all points northwest. Oh, Bristol as well. Well, buddy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, tonight. Steve. I really enjoyed it, and um, we'll put up links to everything and some pictures and, and what have you on www.retromanblog.com and. Um, Okay, buddy, to play us out, let, let, let's just, you, over to you. The floor is yours. Pick a song to play us out on. I'd like to play a song that I recorded as a demo with a band called The Way Out back in probably about 1986, seven. And the reason I want to play it is, first of all, it's a fantastic song written by a brilliant songwriter called Muff Wiles, Matthew Wiles, to his mother. Um, and it's when I sort of learned to drum long after the chords I'd suddenly realised serving the song was the most important thing and that if I want to do this band justice then I'm going to have to temper my flamboyance and uh, <laughs> it's it's still me but I think it's a great song I love the drumming and uh, the vocal is fantastic it's called Someone That You Love Buddy Ascot thank you very much indeed thank you Steve
Great start. November the 28th, 1976. It's a boring Sunday, but at least the London weekend television show with Dread. <laughs> Are we going to be one of those, like, you see, remember the Dennis Norden? Yeah, yeah. Be all right on the night. <laughs> Take 42. November the 28th, 1976. It's a boring Sunday, but at least the London weekend television show with Jenny Street Porter. <laughs> You see, it's not easy, is it, doing these things? I was all right earlier. (laughs) (coughs) (laughs) 